Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, let's dive in. We're continuing our study here of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse. We're in chapter 9, looking at verses 9 through 13. If you're visiting with us today, good morning. My name is Dustin Daniels. I'm the pastor teacher here. Glad you're with us. If you don't have a Bible, we do have them in the back. That's our gift to you. So feel free to stand up, grab one of those. As you turn to Matthew uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 9, let me, um, let me review from last Sunday. Last Sunday was amazing because it is, we really learned about the most important miracle that God could ever perform. The miracle itself is not the physical healing of that paralyzed man, but instead it was the, the spiritual healing of his heart. The most important thing God did, and he still does today, is he turns sinners into saints. And in doing so, we heard the most important words, once again, that Jesus could ever speak, right? It wasn't get up and take your mat. It was your sins are forgiven. Brings us to key point number one from last week. We learned that Jesus is not only the great physician, but more importantly, he's the high priest. Today's church, I think for the most part, really, we're quite obsessed with the healing of our bodies, we live as if we're not going anywhere, which is not true, right? We're going somewhere. Jesus showed us last week that the paralyzed man, his physical healing is secondary to the healing of his soul. So we saw Jesus's priorities, right? Forgiveness was first, and then the healing of his body was second. Why is that? Well, key point number two from last week, we learned that forgiveness the forgiveness of sin is God's greatest gift because it meets man's greatest need. I mean, what good is it for Jesus to heal this man's body and then for him to go back and remain in his sin? That's just a temporary relief. That's just a temporary fix. So today we're going to see how forgiveness leads to discipleship. So in other words, how far and how wide does this forgiveness go? To what extent does forgiveness change somebody? Well, today we're going to learn the, the testimony of Matthew, our gospel writer, right? Everybody loves a good salvation story. And today we're going to learn how Jesus saved the worst sinner in town. How does Matt's testimony impact you? <laughs> oh boy, this is good. This is good. Let's find out together. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. All right, just as we sang those songs together as one voice and one church, let's read God's word together. Scriptures are on the screen for you. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Guys, these are the very words from God. They are authoritative. They are inerrant, meaning they are without error. They are inspired. The Holy Spirit inspired these words, and these words are infallible, meaning they never fail. I pray that we hear them as such this morning. Please pray with me. The psalmist writes, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Father, we do thank you that you do hear our voice, you hear our prayers, and we can't thank you enough for your mercy, for holding back the punishment that we deserve. Lord, give us the the ears to hear and eyes to see this morning as we experience you verse by verse. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Please be seated, guys. Thank you. All right. Let's see here. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And then he got up and he followed him. So let's start with the big picture here, and then we're going to move in slowly. Uh, Matt gives us a very condensed version of this story. Verses 9 and 10 are Matthew's testimony. It's only two verses. Pretty incredible. So Matthew is doing something similar to what the Dutch painter Rembrandt did with one of his paintings in the crucifixion. Uh, Let me show this to you. He painted this in 1633. It's called The Raising of the Cross. If you look closely there, you can see one character. He's out of of place, isn't he? He's got that blue hat on. That's Rembrandt. He painted painted himself into the painting. (laughs) So what's he saying? He's saying, I was there. I, I put Jesus on that cross. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, the producer, he did the same thing. He, it was one of his hands um, that you see in the film where they're nailing Jesus' feet to the cross. That was Mel Gibson's hand. And he's saying the same thing. I put Jesus there. And really, it's the same reality for everyone, right? Our sin drove Jesus to the cross. So Matt's conversion story is the same thing. He, he gives us just a little taste of what was going on. Now, his story is also in Mark and Luke here. So let's look at, at Mark and Luke because we need, uh, we need them to fill in the holes. Mark chapter 2, Jesus went out to the lake shore again, and he taught the crowds that were coming to him. Uh, Luke just says this. He says, later, as Jesus left the town. Matthew says, as Jesus went on from there. So the whole idea is that Jesus left Capernaum, and now he's walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. Um, Pretty good chance here, this is where Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be disciples as well. 
So as Jesus is walking along the, the shore, a crowd is following him. Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's teaching. So back to verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. So both Mark and Luke call, call Matthew by a different name. They call him Levi. Now, Bible critics will point, point out the two names here, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, hey, see this? This is an error. These guys are not on the same page, and they're going to claim that the Bible's not inspired. The, the problem with that, though, is that it was not uncommon today, especially in the first century, for people to be known by multiple names. Um, it was common um, for first century Jews to have two or three names. So, for example, we see this in other parts of Scripture, right? Peter was known as Simon. Mark, uh, the gospel writer, he was known as John Mark. Before the apostle Paul was Paul, he was Saul. Thomas was known as Didymus. Uh, Matthew, getting back to Matthew here, Matthew is his Gentile name, and Levi is his Jewish name. Now, that's fascinating because the name Levi means that this tax collector sprang from the tribe of the Levites. Uh, Matthew comes from a long Jewish history and, and bloodline here, right? The tribe of Levi, they were the priest. They were the priestly class, and their role was to worship. It was to minister at the temple. But instead of worshiping at the temple, Matthew slash Levi here, he's working for the IRS. <laughs> you talk about irony. Holy smokes. And it gets better because Matthew means the gift of God. The gift of God. Huh. Here we see he's sitting in a tax office, verse 9. So Matthew is a tax collector. He's a publican. He's a publicani. Uh, in other words, Matthew is a traitor to the cause of Israel. Uh, Matthew decided that money was a whole lot more important than family, certainly God, so he bought a, uh, a tax franchise from the Romans. And not only did Matt buy the franchise, but he is now extorting money. He is oppressing his own people. And he's also got the, uh, the muscle of the Roman government to back him up. Matthew virtually had unlimited power when it came to taxation. Matt basically had a legal license for extortion. Uh, tax collectors were more despised than Roman officers or soldiers. Matt was barred from the synagogue. He couldn't go to church. He could not have any religious or social contact with his fellow Jews. Very few people would actually take his money as a charitable donation. He was ranked in the same class as pigs. He was viewed as a liar and a robber and a murderer. He, he wouldn't even, uh, he, he couldn't. He, he couldn't give testimony in a Jewish court. So that's just the picture of tax collectors in general. That's how the Jewish society viewed them. Now, we need to chase a rabbit here. I want to show you something. Because it's important to note that there were two categories of tax collectors in the first century. Category number one, the general tax collectors. Their job was to take regular taxes. There were three regular taxes. Property tax, boy, that sounds familiar. One-tenth of your grain, 
One-fifth of, of all the fruit and wine, that's property tax. Income tax, we know all about that too, don't we? 1% of, of money earned on that. And then this is interesting. The third is a registration tax. <laughs> a reg this is a tax simply for breathing Roman error. That's it. Just for being alive, they taxed you. So all of that was done by the general tax collectors. Now, their title in Hebrew was called Gabai. G-A-B-B-A-I. I think that's kind of funny because that's what we say when we write the check to the IRS, right? Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Now, there's also another kind of tax collector here. His job was to collect duty on everything else. So this, this tax collector was not a, a goodbye. He was a moki. And a moki was able to collect taxes on everything being imported, all, everything being exported out, everything bought, everything sold, uh, every road, every bridge, every harbor, every town, every everything was taxed. And a moki could even invent taxes on the spot. They, they could open up your, your packages and your letters to see if business was, was happening within the, the, the letters there, and they would add a tax to the letter. So as you can see, goodbyes were despised, the general tax collectors, but the mokis were detested. Now Luke tells us that Jesus was walking alongside the shore of Galilee. He is teaching, right? This is a prime spot for a tax collector. And guess whose spot this was? Matthew was collecting taxes on everything coming in and going out of the area. His tax booth was near the road from Damascus to the west. The west leads to the Orient, right? So he taxed everybody that was traveling to and from. If you're going east to west, west to east, whatever, he was taxing all the fishermen as the fish would come in. Prime spot. So Matthew wasn't a general tax collector here. He was not a goodbye. He was a moki. Now, this means that Matthew was oppressive. He was unjust. He was robbing people in broad daylight. And if being a moki wasn't bad enough, there were two kinds of mokis. The first was called the great moki. These guys hired somebody to sit at the booth and, and basically take all the heat and the hate from everybody they were uh, taking taxes from. A great moki literally stayed behind the scenes. They, they wanted to have at least the, the appearance of some kind of social decency. But secondly, there were the small mokis. The small mokis collected the taxes themselves. They basically were too cheap to hire somebody. They wanted all the money. A small moki didn't care about his reputation. It was one thing to be a tax collector, guys, but it was worse to be a moki. Still further, it was even worse to be a small moki. And guess what kind of tax collector Matthew is? He's a small moki. He's the small moki of Capernaum. As far as people were concerned, this man is the most wretched man in Capernaum. The whole city hates this guy. The rabbis, they said that repentance is impossible for small mokis. They've crossed the line. They can't ever be forgiven. So if there's one sinner in town that can't go to heaven, it's Matthew. 
Everybody knew that. And here's the other thing. Everybody knows Matthew. Everybody paid Matthew because they were afraid not to. So this whole thing, man, it, it reminds me of the mob. All those mob movies we watch. You didn't pay the mob, what happens? You get a little, little visit from Vinny. Little Vinny. Problem with little Vinny, he's not so little. He's kind of a big guy, and he's got a way of convincing you that you don't need your stuff. So you would pay little Vinny. So with all of that background on Matthew and his profession, we've got Jesus and some of his disciples, this large crowd walking along the shoreline, and they walk by Matthew's booth. And Jesus says, follow me, verse 9. He says, follow me. One moment, Matthew has irritated and angry people standing in line, waiting to pay taxes. And the next, word, and the next moment, he hears these, these amazing words from Jesus. And not only did he hear them, right? Everybody else heard them. So I'm guessing everybody, there's like, <gasps> everybody audible gasp. Holy smokes, Jesus, what are you talking about? The people are now appalled. They are offended. And look at verse 9. What's, what's Matt do? He got up and he followed Jesus. So just picture what happened. Matthew's doing his deal, right? He's got coins everywhere. He's got his ledger. He hears that. He puts the ledger down. He puts the pen down. He moves the money over, pushes this chair back, and he rises to his feet, and he follows Jesus. He closes up shop, guys, and he never returns. Now, let me ask you, why Matthew? Why the worst sinner in town? Why the most hated Jew in town? Why? why? I mean, think about it. Um, Jesus has this huge crowd around him, and everybody except Matthew wants a piece of Jesus. And it's not that, that Matthew didn't know anything about Jesus. Um, as a tax collector, Matthew probably knew more than most people what was happening in around town. In all likelihood, this is not the first time that Matthew saw or heard Jesus. Uh, both men live in Capernaum. Both were infamous in their own rights. Both knew of one another. And, and Matthew may have met Jesus previously. Regardless, he doesn't care. He's, he's sitting. He's, he's doing his, his, his business. He's working it, right? Matthew, he probably sees the crowd approaching. He probably even sees Jesus. What's Matt do? He still sits. He is unfazed by what's going on around him. Why is that? Because this profession says it all. Matthew's God is money. I think Matthew is, is like today's Wall Street workaholic. No matter what's going on around him, he is convinced time is money, baby. I don't have time. Get those taxes ready. But something happened to Matt when he, when he heard that invitation from Jesus. Guys, God's sovereign call on Matt changed everything in his life. Jesus said, follow me. Just like the other disciples, Matt rises, he follows him. This idea of following Jesus, it, it, it means this. 
Matthew, I want you to walk as I walk. I want you to think as I think. I want you to make decisions like I make decisions. I want you to see things as I see things. And when Matt rises, when he stands up, it's the same Greek word for Jesus at the resurrection. Isn't that cool? Matthew rose to his feet. He followed. Why? Because the sheep hear the master's voice. Now, Matthew's calling is a little bit different than the other disciples because think about this now. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? They're all fishermen. Same place. So we have to guess that these fishermen, when Jesus called them, I don't know. It seems to me like in the back of their minds, they've got to think, okay, well, if this discipleship thing doesn't work out, I can always go back to fishing. I got plan B, right? Not so with Matthew. Matthew lost everything this day because within hours, somebody else bought that franchise and the Roman government keep, keeps those taxes flowing in. They, they, they didn't skip a beat on that. Uh, Luke's account confirms it. He says in Luke 5, Levi got up and what did he do? He left everything. Matthew's conversion reminds me of, of other people that we've all heard about, right? They, they've left their jobs, their, their six-figure salaries to, to go into ministry. And their friends and their family are shaking their heads. And they're going, wait, wait, wait you're, you're going to do what? You're, you're quitting your job? Have you lost your mind? Like, what about your house? What about the benefits? What about retirement? What, what, about, your, what about your Maserati? You want to give that up too? You're going to give all this? You're going to go to seminary? And then you plan on going to Africa? What is wrong with you? This is what's happening to Matthew's life. See, Matthew had no safety net. He is all in. Matthew lost his career, but he gained a destiny. And it's in the providence and it's in the sovereignty of Almighty God. See, Jesus has chosen Matthew because God has been, he's been preparing this guy all of his life for this moment. Now, we're not told here that Jesus begged Matthew to come. Matthew didn't say, okay, Jesus, I'm coming. Hang on, hang on. You know, give me a minute here. Let me take care of this last transaction. I'm a little bit hungry. Can I grab something to eat first? Let me go pack my bags. I want to make sure I'm comfortable on this trip. We don't see that. Matthew made this radical decision to follow Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. What are the other disciples thinking at this point? What are they thinking? We got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They know what kind of man and character Matthew is and has. I mean, Matt has personally stolen from every single one of these men. I mean, can't you see Peter running up to Jesus going, whoa, 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 hey, Jesus, time out. If you, you're going to choose this guy? If you choose him, you're going to offend everybody. You're going to alienate everybody. You're going to ruin the ministry. I mean, it's bad enough you got us. We're, we're a bunch of stinky fishermen, right? But this guy, he can't be saved. He can't be forgiven. It's too far. You've gone too far. 
It's a good thing that Jesus doesn't take advice from his disciples. Luke chapter 5 says this, later Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Later Levi invited Jesus, or Mark says this, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. Along with, look, look at this, many tax collectors and other, I love this, disreputable sinners. Not the good sinners, not the clean sinners. These guys are disreputable. Right? And then Mark goes on to say this. There were many people of this kind, this kind among Jesus' followers. See the distancing language there? This kind, those people. We don't associate with those people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, verse 10 in Matthew. So while Jesus was reclining at the table in the house... Many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. So in other words, it's party time. This is a farewell party. Matthew's home. It's in honor of Jesus. So we got the music pumping. The drinks are flowing. Can you imagine the disciples just kind of walking around Matthew's mansion and saying, Hey, I think I paid for that. <laughs> and that... I'm pretty sure I bought that. Can you, can you sense how awkward this party is for the disciples? When you throw a party, you invite your friends, don't you? And who are Matthew's friends? Verse 10, many tax collectors. So he's got more tax collectors do this. We, we all invite people that we, that we associate with, right? Our professions generally indicate the type of friends that we have. So Matthew's friends were just like him. They are social and religious outcasts. Other goodbyes, other mokies from, from other towns show up. And here's the amazing thing about this party, and this is so cool. For the first time in Matt's life, for the first time, guys, he is living the life that he was ordained to live. He is actually showing people the Messiah. He's living the life that he was supposed to live from the line of Moses and Aaron, the priestly class. Amazing. So many tax collectors, back to verse 10, and sinners. And sinners. So the sinners include people like me and you. Last week we talked about how we're all a bunch of liars and thieves, right? Sinners, lying, thieving, blaspheming, uh, adulterers at heart. That's who's at this party. And this is, this is so fun. The, the banquet is a picture of sinners becoming seminarians. Why? Because they're listening to Jesus. They're sitting at the feet of the master teacher as he eats with them and tells them about the kingdom of God. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, uh-oh, they asked his disciples... Hey, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees' question here, it is an attack on Jesus' morality. The, the implication is that if Jesus associates with these, these kinds of people, right? Well, he's, he's got to be like them. He's got he's to want to share in their sin. Brings us to key point number one. 
there is a right way to fellowship with unbelievers and share the gospel. There is a right way to fellowship with unbelievers and share the gospel. See, Jesus eats with sinners. He accepts them where they are, but he doesn't leave them. He doesn't want them to remain where they are. Just like a good teacher loves her students, right? But she wants them to grow. She's going to challenge them into becoming better students. Uh, A good boss, what's he do? He accepts his employees as they are, and, and yet he inspires them. He trains them for personal growth and, and professional growth as well. So back to verse 11, the Pharisees ask, why does your teacher, why does your teacher, you hear the resentment there? Your, this is not our teacher. Our, our teachers don't do this. This is, your, this is your guy. I think maybe the, the Pharisees may have been embarrassed and humiliated that Jesus didn't want to spend any time with them. Um, And if that's the case, the the question from the Pharisees to Jesus, it's more of a a rebuke than a question. Now, the Pharisees' question brings up a very important theological point. Jesus having dinner with sinners should probably be viewed as a glimpse of what's to come. It's called the heavenly banquet. In the heavenly banquet, Matthew 22, um, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what is getting ready to take place. It's called the parable of the great feast. Let me show this to you. The kingdom of heaven, he says, can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to to notify those who were invited. But they, they all refused to come. So the Jews refused to come to this party. The king was furious. So he tells them, he tells the servants, go out into the street corners and invite everybody that you see. So the servants, they they brought in everyone that they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with all these guests. So in other words, since the Jews didn't want Jesus, Jesus went out into the world and he made his invitation to everybody. And guys, that's why we're all here today. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Most of us in here are Gentiles. So think about this. The Jews didn't want him, but guess what? We got Jesus on the ricochet. Praise God. Amen. Back to verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees, they ask this rhetorical question to Jesus' disciples. They don't ask it to Jesus. They ask it to his disciples. So here's the scene. Jesus is inside the house. He's partying with with all the sinners and the tax collectors. His disciples are outside taking this tongue lashing from the the Pharisees and the scribes because there's no way the Pharisees and the scribes are going to walk into Matt's house. That's just not happening. Regardless, Jesus hears the question. Of course he does. Verse 12. When he heard this, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So the slur of the Pharisees here to Jesus' disciples, you're not going to get away with that with Jesus. He's going to see that. He's going to notice that. So Jesus answers their question with a first century proverb. He says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor. The sick do. 
right? In other words, Jesus is just not hobnobbing with the sinners. Jesus, he's not a, a partner in crime like birds of a feather flocking together. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is a spiritual physician. Just because Jesus is close to these men and these women doesn't mean he's going to be contaminated by them. You know, today when people get sick, we go to the hospital. We go to see a doctor, right? So let me ask you, do do hospitals have places for people who are well besides the waiting rooms? You guys go hang out at a hospital for no reason? Of, Of course not. Hospitals and doctors see people who are sick. In Jesus' day, no hospitals. Doctors had to make house calls, right? And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus is a spiritual physician. So he's going where the sick people are. And it's as if Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. All right, guys. If you're really as spiritually and morally perfect as you think you are, you don't need any help from me. You don't need any help from God. But you know what? These people do. And that's why I'm here. So he says this in verse 13. He says, I want you to go and learn what this means. This is a strong rebuke um, in Judaism, especially to these scribes and Pharisees. Go and learn. In other words, you should know this, but you don't. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. So Jesus tells them, go and learn. You you guys don't even know the basics of Judaism. This is where it gets really fun because Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Hosea here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're supposed to know about Hosea. A major theme in Hosea is mercy. Hosea 6.6, I desire, this is God speaking, I desire mercy. I I don't care about your sacrifice. So by quoting this verse, Jesus was saying this, in essence. He's saying, look, guys, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to save sinners. And by the way, that includes you, even though you don't believe it. You you don't see yourself as a sinner. That's fine. Um, You see yourself as someone who is right with God because this is what you do. You you go to church. You drop a few bucks in the the bucket. You... uh, you know, you serve at the homeless shelter once a month. And you've created this, this God in your mind that is just so convenient for you to serve him on your time frame. And I want you to know, I don't care about your, your silly little gifts. I don't, I don't care about your, your money. I don't care that you serve at the homeless shelter. I don't care that you brag about it to other people. I care about your heart. I care about a relationship. I don't want sacrifice. Your sacrifices mean nothing to me. And the, and the, and the, and the Pharisees, they never got this through their head. Key point number two. Religious people love the knowledge of God, but they lack the mercy of God. Religious people love the knowledge of God, but lack the mercy of God. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they believe that works is more important than mercy. They believe a lie. 
So Jesus did what he always does with the Pharisees. He just pins these guys to the wall with their own scripture from Hosea. Hosea, the book about Hosea, or of Hosea, it's about God's faithful love to an unfaithful people, Israel. Um, So Hosea has a real marriage to a woman named Gomer. And that marriage is a vivid illustration. So let me just point out the obvious here. When you start dating someone named Gomer, I think you're off to a bad start. I'm just, I'm just saying. So not only does she have a bad name, she's also a prostitute. So Jesus' illustration is this. Gomer's behavior, a.k.a. the nation of Israel, is a sign that points to Israel's spiritual adultery. And yet Hosea's continuing love, his his continuing forgiveness of Gomer is a picture of God's mercy. It's a picture of God's love, his forgiveness to Israel. But Israel doesn't want him. Gomer didn't want Hosea. See, Israel wanted religion, not a relationship. They wanted to keep a set of rules. Keeping a set of rules, that's easy for a short period of time, but you can't keep it up. And when your worldview and and when your idea of, of God is a set of rules, rather than mercy and rather than grace, you're always going to have conflict, especially in the church, because you're not following the rules. And who says your set of rules are the same as God's set of rules? And that was the the problem with the the scribes and the Pharisees because they put rules on top of rules on top of rules. So Jesus, he's trying to show these guys the truth. Verse 13, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners know that. Jesus says, I didn't come. I didn't come. Where'd you come from? Jesus? Nazareth? Yeah. I came from heaven. He's he's showing his divine authority. Jesus came from heaven. His ways are not our ways, right? So key point number three, Jesus came to call sinners. That's, That's the main point of this passage. The Pharisees thought Jesus should spend time with sinners only after they changed. We still do it today, don't we? Religious people think that if God is interested in somebody, they have to reform themselves. All you have to do is just try a little harder. I don't even know what that means. Trying a little harder, trying to reform ourselves, buying some books from the self-help section at the bookstore... That's like getting cleaned up before you take a shower. That's like teaching a drowning man how to swim. Drowning man doesn't need swimming lessons. He needs a savior. So over the past several weeks, we've seen two groups of people emerge from these narratives. And I find this fascinating. A couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus save two demon-possessed men. So we've got two saved, sane men. And then what happened? We got the townspeople. 
who did not believe. They, they asked Jesus to leave. We saw Jesus forgive, first and foremost, and then heal a paralyzed man and then his four friends. So they have faith versus, once again, the unbelieving scribes and the Pharisees. And today we see Jesus save the worst sinner in town. Not only does he save him, he calls him to discipleship. And once again, we see the unbelieving scribes and the Pharisees. So I, I've asked this question twice. I need to ask it again because the text keeps bringing it up. What group are you in? Are you in or out? Right? There, there are two basic elements uh, to Christianity. You're either in or you're out. You either believe or you don't. Right? We either accept this free gift that God has given to us through Christ alone or we refuse it. And we, we live according to our standards and our principles. Once again, we, we think that we're good. We're good. Problem, though, is Jesus is teaching us here that good people don't go to heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees thought they were good, but good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven sinners go to heaven. See, the gospel is not for good people. Look around. We're a mess. We're a mess. But we're God's mess. We're not good. The depravity of our heart, we proved that last week, right? We looked at, <laughs> we looked at, at two of, of, of God's top ten commands. Right? The ten commandments. We looked at whether or not we're liars have we told a lie? Yeah. How many lies have we told? Countless. It makes us a liar. We've stolen. We're thieves. We're lying thieves. Lying thieves. Newsflash. Don't go to heaven. We still have eight more commandments to go. <laughs> we can't even get one right. Guys, listen. Scripture tells us that Nobody's good. Romans 3.12. No, not one. Nobody seeks after God. God seeks after you. There's a call. We see the call here. Matthew's doing his own thing, and then he, it's just amazing. God calls him, and he, he responds. See, the gospel is not for good people. The gospel is for bad people who know they're bad. The gospel is for people who will confess their sin and, and who are teachable. So just as Jesus spoke those divine words to Jesus last Sunday, he did say get up and walk. He did. But he first said your sins are forgiven. And guys, once again, those are the greatest words you'll ever hear. I hope you did some business with God last week. Asking yourself if you're in or out. If you're in, how do you know? Has God changed you? When, you? when you look over your shoulder, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, whether it's been a year or 10 years or 50 years, are you a different person? And dear friends, if you're not a different person, if you're the same old grumpy, irritable, angry person, 
and God hasn't changed you, man, I, I want to encourage you to get on your face and do some business with God this week because something's wrong. We see that in today's text, don't we? Matthew's testimony is a, a version of our testimony. He was once blind, and now he can see, and we can say the same thing about us. We, we all have the same story. Our life was this way, we meet this Jesus, and now my life is that way. It's amazing. So if you're out and you, you still don't believe, let me share one more illustration with you. Let's say you're a doctor, you're a medical doctor, and you have a patient coming in. He's a young guy. He's a healthy guy. He's even a good-looking guy. He's, he's tall. He even has hair, right? <laughs> so he walks in, and he, he thinks he's healthy because he doesn't feel bad. But you're, you're the doctor, and you ran some blood tests on him. You took some x-rays, and you know something that he doesn't. So what do you do when he comes in? You've got the cure. This thing is curable. However, if he doesn't do anything about it, he will be dead in six months because the disease progresses, and it's only within the last 30 to 45 days to where he'll start to feel sick. So do you tell him? Do you give him the cure right away? Or do you give him the diagnosis? If, if you give him the cure right away, he's not going to take it, is he? Doc, I don't need that. I feel great. But if you show him the diagnosis, if you show him the blood work, if you show him the x-rays, and you say, this is what's going to happen in, over the next six months. This is bad news. However, I've got the cure. But you need to take the cure. It's the same thing spiritually. Before we get to the good news, the gospel is called the good news. Before we get there, we have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is we're not good people. Say, oh, Dustin, you know, I'm going to, I'll just figure this thing out when I, when I cross that bridge. No worries. Well, that's kind of like being thrown out of an airplane. Because, you know, why do people put parachutes on? You put a parachute on because you don't want to hit the ground at 100 miles an hour, right? Yeah. If you're going to figure this thing out and, and live your life based on your good works, getting thrown out of an airplane and doing this <laughs> is not going to do much good, is it? This is your good works. And dear friends, let me just share something with you. The only difference between being in or out is the gospel. The parachute is the gospel. Amen. That's it. So I pray that you would, uh, I pray that you would consider doing some business with God today. For those of you who look in your rearview mirror and you say, you know what, I really haven't changed that much. For those of you who have something, something's not right. Why do I not want this Jesus? Well, if you've got those kind of questions, please get, please get them answered today. At least start the conversation. We've got a prayer room um, through the foyer to the right. I'll be up here at the front because there's nothing more important than eternal life. 
Father in heaven, we can't thank you enough for saving the most wretched guy in Capernaum. <laughs> because he is uh, he's a picture of all of us. The worst sinner in town. We have so much to learn from this story. So many relationships that you introduced as you have chosen the, the disciples, how the disciples handled all of that, all the things that you had to, to teach them and you continue to teach us. Lord, if, if we're hearing you call us today, please, please let us know that we, we will make the decision not to harden our own heart. If you're calling us today, Lord God, may we respond through repentance and faith. For those of us who have been walking with you year after year, decade after decade, Father, I pray that you would put these tax collectors and these sinners in the Verde Valley in front of us, and you would give us the opportunity to share Jesus day by day. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.